after jam pumping. Right. I personally am a fan of uh, any any measure of jam pumping. Hard same. Hard same. That can be done. Yeah. Hard, hard same. Yeah. Is this good? Can you see more of my face? Or no, just, less. Still just less my- now. Oh, less now. Yeah, because like now, because you just move this up a, oh. a, twi- a, a pinch. I could also see through it. Oh, okay. Well, that feels weird. Well, I mean, I mean what you're seeing, not what I'm doing. Right, right, right. No, it's okay. it's specifically very visual, so no one who hears this will <laughs> understand. Anything that we're doing but right like, now. But like, go have a conversation with your friend, and then both of you put your hands in front of your mouths and keep talking. That's basically what's happening. Oh, uh, well, shit. Hey, guess what? Hmm. Welcome to Ghost and Hose. Hey, Ghost and Hose. Burp a derp. Yeah, burp a derp. Ghost and Hose, a paranormal podcast where we mm-hmm. talk about all things baby. Yeah. Cryptids. Sometimes. Aliens. For more frequently than I would care. Motherfucking witchcraft. <laughs> yeah. Murder most motherfucking foul. Ew, and yeah. that one time. The one time. Space Ocean. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So, and if you're new here, I'm D. I'm Z. There's Randall on the ones and twos. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Earlier today. Yeah. So John and I usually will spend the days together and then he goes to work and I'll do my work. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Today's the only day where I'm not going out somewhere <laughs> until God knows when. Uh, so we had a little bit of time. We wanted to watch a movie. It was my pick. Yeah. So I looked at the very first one that popped up like, oh, maybe Exorcist 3 because it's oh, so good. Yeah. It's so, so good. I was like, it's just a little too long, just ever so slightly mm, too long. Yeah. Scroll through, scroll through, scroll through. I'm like, oh, this one is 82 minutes. This fun little romp oh called boy. 13 Ghosts. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've seen that movie a ton. So it was, you know, just nostalgic for me. But fuck, that movie, A, practically horrific. Mm-hmm. But it's so much fun. And the makeup, good God. Mm-hmm. Greg uh-huh. Nicotero and uh, uh-huh. Robert Kirkman. Uh-huh. Yep. Did not know that until today. I did a photo shoot based off of that movie once. Where you were the jackal, I was right? The jackal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it I- a jackal? It's a jackal. It's a jackal. <laughs> Is it a jackal? Every time I hear the word, I yeah. can't. I Same. can't not. <laughs> I watched a really, really good movie last night. Which one? The harder they fall. Oh. Idris Elba. Yeah, okay. um, uh, Regina uh, from Two Two Seven. Is that her name? Regina King? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Welcome. I, I feel like I know who that is, but... You do. Yeah. And then uh, there's many other actors that I've, like, kind of recognized, but really, really, really fucking good. Violent good as things. fuck. Okay. But good. Like, Internet. Tarantino violent. At first, I was like, wow, this is really Tarantino-esque, but then it sort of became its own thing. So okay. fucking good. Okay. Highly, highly recommend if you are into Westerns. Okay. Um... It's it's so incredibly well done, and the entire cast, main cast, all African American actors. Or Idris Elba is not African American; he is just British. But but everyone is black. Okay, I can um, that. except there's a handful of white people, and the only time that you really see more than the one random Caucasian person is when they go to a white town. But. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give anything away, and it's not like that. It's just, it's... Yeah, it's good. Yeah, yeah. Visually, everything is white. Okay. The street, the, the it looks like snow. It's okay. wild. It's so good. Oh. So fucking good. 
Okay. Love when that happens. Check that out. So fucking good. I mean. I had another one, too. Yeah. Uh, it's called God's Own Country. Mm-hmm. It's a okay. gay movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, fucking amazing. Uh, oh, I think John really posted about good. that. He did. He said it was really, really, really it's good. It's very, very good. It's about uh, two farmers. All right. And there's, like, very legitimate farm work being done. Like, uh, oh, yes, birthing, about- birthing and skinning animals. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, it's very graphic. Those are polar opposites. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, I watched a movie, too. Oh, what'd you well, say? Well, it was an old movie. Oh, sure. Uh, Fear.com. How is that? It, it was... Is it a romp? I wouldn't call it a romp. <laughs> okay. But it was it absolutely made in 2002. Oh, yeah. And I feel like I mean that as a compliment. Well, it's just like... But also, I'm not sure. It's very it's very much of the era, and it was it was fun. Yeah. It was fun. It's exactly it the same silly. thing with 13 Ghosts. It was 2001. Yeah. It's I like, oh, it. you are very 2001. Yeah, but I love that movie. I don't care. Oh, I do too. It's so much. I absolutely... Yeah, that movie is fantastic. So fun. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely from 2002. Yeah. But it, okay. was, it was fun. I'd be like, yeah, give it a watch. It was... Uh, Another one of those, like, it's a cursed and or haunted website, and people are dying, and there's a ghost, maybe. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, you're like, mm, there's a lot happening, but it was fun. You know what I've heard of, a, a, like, just surfacing through, like, social media and shit, hmm. is that VHS is really good? That, um, I've heard that I from a lot of that, random sources. I know that I have seen it, but... I could tell you nothing about it. Okay, so, so. not incredible. Well, also, it's because you know, my brain is garbage, sure, and I sure, watch sure. so many movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't feel like it really left an impression. It's not just me having a terrible brain. Okay. But I would probably need to watch it again. Okay. There you go. But yeah. Well, Movie right. corner. Hey, backhoes. Yeah, uh, you have one. So, um, for those of you in the paranormal world, um, Scott Grunewald passed away. He was um, a reporter for Paranormal Paparazzi. He's been on Ghost Adventures. He's been on many, a many paranormal show here and there. Um, He was a very beloved person within the paranormal community. He was too damn young and he will be greatly, greatly missed. Yes. R.I.P., sir. What you got? Um, shout out to our new patron, Sydney. Hey, Sydney. What up, Sid? Thanks, <laughs> buddy. Your stuff is in the mail. It should be there, hopefully, when you hear this. Ooh. It should have been there earlier, but one, I didn't have stamps. Two, I set it in the mailbox, and the mailman just didn't take it. That's weird. I know. We just got a letter. <laughs> I think it was not my normal mail carrier. Must not have been. Because whenever he is gone, that mm-hmm. happens. Weird. I know. It's like they leave. Because the only mail I really get is bills or garbage. Yeah. And so that's just... always in there. But I'm like, Ugh. take it. Huh? So anyway, your stuff should hopefully be to you by the time you're hearing this. Love that. Um, And then. And then. Um, I got a message Ooh. from one of our listeners that said, listening to the latest ep and happened to have grown up in the living hell that is Red Bluff. Oh. Uh, and then they sent me a photo 
Said 1140, I believe, was the Hooker house. The other address is the first house my parents rented when they moved there in the 90s. Oh, boy. And hang on. Oh, it's a... forgot. Oh, boy. So that is Cameron and Janice Hooker's house. Uh-huh. And that was where their parents rented oh, a house. Oh, boy. Like right there. Yeah. Like you could throw a ball into their yard from Yikes. there. And I was like, yeah. Uh, and then they said the rest of his family, Cameron's, is still in town. And this person went to high school with a niece of his. Oh. Which I was like, no! Which I'm sure no one's really into. Yeah, no. So. No. When you've got that kind of yeah. guy yeah. in and your fam. Speaking of. Oh. Last week. Yes. And all all of the weeks. All of them. Um, thank you to everybody that sent me such nice messages and comments about my coverage of that nightmare. Oh, good. Um, yes, it was very nice of you to say such sweet things, and you're going to make me cry again. <laughs> <laughs> because they were very nice. Uh, but that is all the backhoes I Actually, have. Actually, I oh, do, do have you? one okay. more. Because I was going to say, I've got some things. Yeah, um, real quick, yes. when we were talking two weeks ago about the lady in the dunes getting her yes. name back yes, and yes, yes. And killed her. her. Her husband being convicted mm-hmm. or named. We didn't say her name. Oh, I posted about it when, oh, okay, it, when it came out. Okay, good. Yes. Okay, good. I just realized, I, we, I was like, wait a minute, no, we didn't say her name, but her name it. was Ruth Marie Terry, yes, but, it was. and you did post about it, but yes. yeah, I just realized Last when week. I was listening to that episode, I was like... Oh, shit. We, yeah, so. <laughs> no, we hoops. did. We did. Good, um, good, good. Yes. We have things. We do. We have things. We, we got presents. We got a presents. Yeah, this is from our lovely listener, Max. They have created several hilarious memes for oh, us before. Boy. I don't know what it is. I haven't looked. I, oh, okay. What just fell? Oh, it was oh, just okay, good. bubble wrap, I thought. There is a, there is a letter in here. Oh, good. Um. But yes. We like presents. Presents. <laughs> the envelope yes. says, please open at the request of Her Majesty's Fish Me Ma. <laughs> Which is a throwback to another episode. Um, so yes. Let's see. This is what we got. What we got. Fancy letter. Ooh, much fans. Oh, your handwriting is delightful. Uh, oh, they do art. Yes. Uh, salutations, hoes. I could wax poetic about how your podcast has been a light in a dark place many times in my life. However, uh, getting too emotional will make me explode. Fair. Same. Uh, but seriously, you bring a spotlight to those sometimes forgotten. You allow the voices of those who never had a chance to speak to be heard, and you handle your content with a grace and care I haven't found on another podcast of similar interest. Thank you for what you do. Uh, yeah. yeah, this is lovely. I love this. Uh, and this says, uh, to Randall, for legal purposes, I definitely didn't, uh, <laughs> I didn't, uh, take any reference photos. Definitely did not. Oh, boy. Uh, took a while what? for me to narrow down what to make for you, but there is one story that lives uh, vicariously, unfortunately, in my mind. Z. <laughs> uh, so you got the best of me, so we'll s- you'll see soon. And this is going to be hilarious. I am very excited. They made us personalized art. 
we have got it art. and it didn't yeah. have reference photos for the story that reminded them of i me. think so i don't know i have not looked okay. the only reason this was open was because i didn't know if it was going to take me a hundred years to open it here got it so but thankfully this box wasn't what it was just a sticky one. Oh, okay yeah, yeah. not like i didn't need a knife or anything so do we know whose is whose? Will they be? Yes, because they labeled it okay. for us, which is a delight. You are a treasure. Okay, this one's for you. Pardon me? <laughs> uh, you are a plural Randall now, because there was an accidental S. <laughs> okay. Oh, God. Which is funny, because that's I'm going to wait. Should we all pull yeah. ours off at the same time? Yes. Our covers? Yeah. <clears throat> I w- I'm going to laugh really hard if this is it. It's just it's my just name written on a piece of paper. Uh, for you. Okay. And para me. Oh, boy. I am. Uh, get off. I want to look at it. <laughs> the bubble wrap is so much blue wrap. Looks like snakeskin. <laughs> All right. Okay. All right. Are we ready? Yeah. One, two, three. Oh. <gasps> <laughs> oh my oh god. Oh my god. This is beautiful. This is incredible. What is yours? Teabagging Bob <laughs> Mine is Princess Baby Joan Demon of Filth. Yes. <laughs> Mine is Honey Island Swamp Glamour. <laughs> These are amazing. This is fantastic. This is fucking amazing. I love that I have. Two Bob Cranmer pieces now. You do. Yeah, you do. Oh, Max, thank you. This thank you nutsack so is so lifelike. So much. This is this, this is great. Just the best thing. This is great. This is wonderful. I love it so much. You are a treasure. This is wonderful. Love, love, you are love. Incredible. Princess Baby Chone Demon of Filth. I so fucking good. love it. Um, I feel like you Thank nailed you it. Thank you so much. This is clearly the same house yeah, from the it's other the house. one. Yes, that's what they meant by reference photos. I get it now. Right. Yeah. Okay, cool. but are those your balls? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what's the line? That's none of your goddamn business, Dan. <laughs> Now, thank you, say, out of my affairs. There it is. There That's the complete is. line. There it is. Um, also, oh, those are fucking awesome. Thank you thank so you very much. much. Oh, we got snakes. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, boy. And then these are for after these, because these might not be great. Okay. okay. Um, They look like sun chips. Uh-huh. I can't tell. They're, they're made by leg. I they can are. say that. They see, are. See that. Yeah. ASMR. Ooh. Don't knock scary. yourself was, out doing yeah. it. Yeah. That was... Don't have to punch yourself. Oh. oh, that means you're going to hate it. No, they. I was trying to figure out. I'm like, it doesn't really smell like anything at first, but then it there's like a faint right. smell of the flavor. Oh. Oh, gross. I already know what it is just by smelling I, it. I caught a look at the front. Mm-hmm. Oh. This did you gonna, see what I just did? This is going to be disgusting. You tried to smell I went your, to smell the bag and I smelled smell my filter. microphone. <laughs> oh, oh, man. I don't know how I feel about this. I know. Oh, I can. I already know what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, and it smells like it. I know. Are we gonna say what it is now? Yeah, oh, beer. God. Beer flavored. Beer flavored chips. fucking chips. And it smells just oh, like this beer. Is gonna suck. That's why I, I hate beer. These. So do I. I don't hate beer, but I don't like beer on my chips. Are we ready? Yeah. yeah. Mm. 
Absolutely not. No. Yeah. No. Put it back. Oh, fuck. It's not great. No. Oh. I don't hate it that much, but. I do. I don't hate it that much, but I definitely don't love it. Oh. It tastes like perfume, which is also why I don't like beer, because a lot of it tastes like perfume to me. It tastes exactly how beer smells. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It's like eating beer perfume. It's got like a little bit of a sweet Mm -hmm. bit to it. Yeah. But then there's some hoppy hoppiness to it, too. Yeah. This is not what I want in a chip. No. I don't want that in anything. It's oh. like a it's like a light beer. Yeah, it's oh. like a Bud Light. It's fucking gross. It's like Bud Light on tap. Yeah. What's my palate cleanser? And whatever it is, I need it. Um, oh, these are... Terrible. Campfire S'mores M&M's. Into it. Love that. Let's do that. They might be... Oh, oh that was too many. Well... There's never such thing. They all came out all real fast. They might be a little melty. Oh, oh God. Okay, They're, fucking Christ. Hold on, God uh-huh. damn it. She's just throwing them on the floor. She's mad at the I chips. have a dog. She's big enough. They're like sticky or something. Sure. That's why. They were kind of melty. Hmm. Okay, that's much better. Yeah. Much better. That was terrible. No, those are not very mm. good. That's going straight in the fucking garbage. <laughs> oh, it's like a smoky chocolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really good. These are good. Much if better. If you see them, get them. Mm-hmm. They can't fire s'mores M&M's. Yeah. yeah. Them. That's sure. why. That's why I saved these. Yeah. No, I thanks. Knew. Good call. Yeah. I oh, knew. good call. Because I knew you hated beer like I hate beer. But I was yeah. like, I got to try them, though. I got to try them. That was fucking terrible. Well, where do you get these? Um, usually when I go to, um, the Asian supermarkets, like H Mart, well, H Mart and Fubon. There's a Wajimaya here now, isn't there? Uh, it's like out Beaverton Hills. Oh, Beaverton? Okay. Yeah. I it's love H Mart. Same. Um, I recently went there for the first time and I really enjoyed it. Right? Every time I go there, I buy myself one of their little, uh, kimchi buns. Mm. Mm, yum. They're really good. Well, shit. Who goes first? You do. Oh, cool. Well, I'm going to stop putting chocolate in my face and <laughs> put on my goddamn eye barts like a professional adult person. God, these are so good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, I found them at Fred Meyer or Safeway. All right, guys. Well, today, what an interesting story. It's a feel good, feel bad cold case. Okay. That was partially solved. When an adopted girl went in search of her biological family. Oh. So let's go. On Sunday, July 26th, 1971, in the Englewood area of Coos County, Oregon, three teen boys moving horses from one property to another discovered the almost skeletal remains of what appeared to be a young man lying face up in Snedden Creek. The authorities were called, and when they arrived, they removed the highly decomposed body from the water and determined that the body did appear to be a teen male. The first thought was that this could potentially potentially be the body of a 16-year-old Coos Bay teen that had been missing for several months. The young man was wearing a long-sleeved turtleneck sweater, and his pants were found a short distance from where his body was found. They were described as blue jeans that laced up the sides with leather straps, but unfortunately there was no ID. So I'm assuming you know those bell bottoms that would lace up the sides? Oh, yeah. Ah, yeah. 
So, you know, it's 71. Very specific pant, though. A very specific pant. A very specific pant. It's not like Levi's. They were like clearly bell bottoms that had leather up the sides, Mm -hmm. on both sides. So, very specific pant. The medical examiner confirmed that the remains were that of a young male, approximately 15 years of age, with a medium build, 5'4 to 5'6, with long brown hair. Okay. He was unable to give any cause of death because the decomp had been so bad. And he had also determined that the body could have been in the creek anywhere from five weeks to five months. Dental records pretty quickly ruled out the missing local boy, so they now focused on trying to identify the young John Doe that would be nicknamed Frog Boy. Okay. Coos County Sheriff's Department investigated what they could with what little they had. They canvassed the area, talked to neighbors living in the area of Snedden Creek. They asked the public for help and tried to build a timeline around the area and local events that had been going on, but they didn't find anything that could help identify Frog Boy, so... The county paid for a plot to bury the young man in a local cemetery with a headstone that read, Unidentified Juvenile Male. His case went cold, but they kept it open, along with several other cases that they would you know, periodically revisit in time when technology might mm-hmm. allow yeah. for a breakthrough. Yeah. So they kept it open. Well, that's good. Very smart. Very. Now, Lori Merriman... I'm sorry, Lori Merriam was born in Boise, Idaho in June of 1971 and had been adopted locally by the Merriam family at two weeks old. Lori's childhood was happy and filled with love, but she was always aware of the ways in which she was different from them. As she put it, I always stood out and I didn't know where that came from or why I had the likes or dislikes or why I walked the way I did or the way I talked even was different. I've got red hair and fair skin. No one in my adoptive family does. So it's just like I never fully fit in with the family. Okay. Chocolate frog in my throat. (laughs) So now Lori always knew that she had been adopted later saying, even as a little girl, I knew that I had other parents somewhere that weren't able to take care of me and wanted me to have a better home. So she also knew at a young age that she would someday want to look for her bio parents. So with her adoptive parents' full support and encouragement, she started looking for her bio family at the age of 12. And she would use records and books from the local library. And eventually, when she was 15, she found paperwork that really helped to clarify where her family might have come from, later saying, I got it narrowed down to about 150 miles radius of Boise where I was born and raised. I had paperwork, some of my adoption paperwork, that described the age of my birth mom, what she looked like, and how many siblings she had. Lori said, with that information, her family was able to determine that her biological parents were likely from a rural area, later saying, We had some ideas. I was close to where she could have been, but we didn't know. Then, in 1987, a couple years after she started her search, tragedy struck. Lori's adoptive father was killed in a plane crash, which made her even more determined to look for her biological father. By the summer of 1988, her resources had started to dry up. And she kept hitting dead ends. Now, 17 years old, Lori had worked all summer to save up money to go on her senior trip to Europe. But, and this is going to sound sketch as hell. Oh, boy. Lori changed her plans 
after a family friend who knew that she had been searching for her biological family put her in touch with a private investigator who used the alias, and I shit you not, Mr. X. Okay. Okay. Lori would later say, I decided to take that money and hire Mr. X to see if he could find my birth family. Well, guess what? He was not full of shit, nor scam artist, because literally within one day of Lori using all of her money for her senior trip to hire Mr. X, he called her and told her that he'd found her birth mom and her name was Kay. Oh. <clears throat> so Lori immediately reached out. A meeting was arranged for the following week. And she said, when we first met, we hugged and it was just like an instant connection. That was a puzzle piece that was missing and just filled my heart. I can't even describe that connection. Kay told her Lori her life story. She'd gotten pregnant at 15 and was sent to Booth Maternity Home in Boise, which was where young and unwed mothers were sent to give birth and then are sent home and the babies are usually put up for adoption. <clears throat> I'm going to drink some tea because I have got chocolate devil in my throat. <laughs> You know, like when you eat like chocolate and it gets all mm -hmm. and it makes flemmy. You, makes your spit do the orange juice thing. Flemmy. Mm -hmm. I'm flemmy. All right. Anyway, so um, Kay wanted to keep her baby, but it just wasn't something that was feasible at the time. You know, she's 15. Yeah. Her parents sent her there. But what about her dad? Where had he been in all of this? Lori still didn't know anything about him. His name was not on her birth certificate either. So now that she had found Kay, she hoped that she would get an opportunity to learn something more about her dad. But for now, she focused on getting to know her biological mom. She got to know her side of the family better. And over time, she built a relationship with them. And then when Christmas rolled around, she was asked to spend it with Kay's family. And she was given a very special gift. It was a photo of a very handsome young man named Winston Arthur Maxey III. Oh. That was Lori's father. And when she looked at that photograph, she realized that her red hair and freckles were inherited from him. Oh. Kay and Wint started dating when they were 15 and in their hometown of Rupert, Idaho. She pretty quickly got pregnant. He also wanted her to keep the child, but her parents thought it best that the baby be put up for adoption. So, unfortunately, the last time Kay saw Wint was in April of 1971 when she was seven months pregnant and she was able to visit him one last time before being sent to Booth Maternity Home. And that was all she knew. She lost track of him after that. So, Lori went back to Mr. X to look for her father, Winston. But it wasn't quite as easy this time. There was nothing. Nada. Lori did eventually manage to make contact with Winston's family, but this also ended up being a dead end. Oddly enough, no one knew where he was or what had happened to him. She heard lots of stories, though, and some said that he'd left home to join the circus or that he had joined the rodeo circuit. But she never heard anything concrete, just a bunch of rumors and mm -hmm. stories about Wint and where he ended up. But the truth was elusive. And Lori would say, the stories always changed. Hmm. Well, she sure wasn't going to give up. 
And in her 20s, she started putting ads in local newspapers in Bend and Portland, Oregon, seeking information about her father, thinking maybe he had moved there because it's close to Idaho, but nothing came of it. Then we entered the age of technology. In 2016, Lori submitted her DNA to Ancestry.com, hoping for something, but there were no matches. She also turned to social media and started a Facebook page called Where in the World is Winston Maxey? where she asked for help in finding her father. Uh, she also reached out to a Facebook page called Idaho Cold Cases that they also shared her mm -hmm. story to their thousands of followers. That same year, Lori tried to report her father missing, but because Winston was not on her birth certificate, that was a problem. They wouldn't let her. Oh. She also didn't know where technically where he had gone missing from, so she would literally call police departments in multiple towns, cities, and counties in the Idaho and Oregon areas, tell them her story. She said they were all very kind. They took her information, but they weren't really able to do much because there was not a lot to go on. Yeah. Lori even tried to get Wint added to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and National Missing and Unidentified Person System, a.k.a. NamUs, which we've talked about so many times. Yes. But he was not able to be added because there was no official missing persons report on file with any law enforcement agency. Balls. And I'm pretty sure at this point you're all asking yourselves, why? How? He's got a family, right? She met him, right? Yeah. I will get there very soon. But parallel to all the work that Lori was doing at the time, the Coos County Sheriff's Department was doing some as well. As new technology and genetic genealogy was being developed, Ca Captain Jason Patterson of Coos County Sheriff started looking into doe cases, and one of the identifications that they were hoping to make was the frog boy. So in 2017, Patterson, using a grant from the Oregon State Medical Examiner's Office, made arrangements to have the frog boy exhumed. They took some bone fragments, because there wasn't much left, and sent them off for a DNA profile, which came back, as unidentified male, which may not sound like much, but it did give significant data, including ancestry, eye, skin, and hair color, face morphology, and a composite profile that was used to search through sources for missing persons, cold cases, and ancestry sites. The DNA was also uploaded to the NamUs database and analyzed by Parabon Nanolabs. Now, if any of y'all have ever listened to any of our little patroons <laughs> with our DNA expert, Lucille too, then you'll understand when I tell you that Parabon Nanolabs uses genetic genealogy to help identify does, which in turn can and has helped authorities solve murders. Mm -hmm. In 2021, and in all, all my sources give a different month, so the timeline is a little fucky, but really not that pertinent. The Frog Boy John Doe case came across the desk of Parabon's chief genetic genealogist, C.C. Moore. And according to her, his case was one of the uh, one of the harder cases that she had worked on, saying, It was very difficult on the genetic genealogy side of it. Typically, I can come up with a strong hypothesis for someone's identity on these organ cases in a weekend or a couple of days. Now, remember that Lori submitted her DNA to Ancestry in 2016? Mm-hmm. But can anyone guess what I'm about to say? Uh, someone was adopted? Well, she had not uploaded to GEDmatch. Oh. Because 
a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah. Therefore, when Cece got Frog Boy's DNA, mm-hmm. she was unable to match it into Ancestry. Ah, because it hadn't... Right. Hadn't opted in. And this is not the first time I've talked about a case that could have been solved a little sooner. This gets this doesn't hang on very long here. Yeah. Um, but so they were unable to make a match. So Cece never saw Lori's DNA in there. Uh, she did, however, build several family trees, which took her just a few months and led her to a family in Idaho. And then eventually, in July of 2021, 50 years to the month of his being found, Frogboy was identified as Winston Arthur Maxey III. So, Moore got onto the interwebs to find what she could on Winston and came across a Facebook page called Where in the World is Winston Maxey? That was made by the daughter that, according to the page, he had never met. So, Cece reached out to Lori through her Facebook page in August to tell her that she knew where her dad was, but that it was not happy news. Later saying, I really understood the sensitivity that this was going to require and need, and that would be, that it would be heartbreaking for her, which it was. Lori and Cece had a very lengthy and in-depth phone call that day with Lori devastated that her dad had finally been found, but that he had been dead for basically as long as she'd been alive. She was born in June of 71. He was found mm-hmm. in July. Ugh. Yeah. Cece then asked Lori to download her raw data from Ancestry.com and upload it to GEDmatch, which she did, and it confirmed that, in her words, the John Doe who'd been missing for 50 years actually was my dad. And she wanted to know why he had never been reported missing. Yeah. So the next step... And in order for the identification of Wint to be made official, a match needed to be made between his remains and a legal relative. Oh, okay. His family was contacted, and one of his younger sisters, Marla, agreed to be the match. So now let's get to Winston's story. Yes, please. Winston Arthur Maxey III, or Wint, as he was called, was born October 4th, 1954 in Rupert, Idaho. He was the second child and the first son born to Winston Arthur Maxey Jr. and his wife, Laureen. They would eventually have eight children in total, four boys and four girls. And it would be one of his sisters, Marla, that would eventually give the most info about her brother's life. Winston was described as being a cute, shy boy, and his classmates would remember him as having a big heart. And his friends would say that he was a good kid, a typical teen, didn't do drugs or look for trouble. According to Marla, out of everyone in the family, Wint was the black sheep, saying he wanted to dance to his own tune. I mean, he was a good brother for the most part, but he fought my parents every inch of the way. He didn't like rules, didn't like what they had going for him. Which, as Marla saw it, led her brother to make friends with the wrong sort of people. I'm also seeing him as more of a hippie. Mm Mm-hmm. In a very small rural town in Idaho. Yeah. His, in his father was a, you know, World War II early vet. 60s. Yeah. Early 70s. Yeah. His father was, that you know, yeah. World War II vet and they were strict. Yeah. Okay. So that's how I'm seeing this. Yeah. It tracks. Right. So. Um, Especially with uh, the bell bottoms. Yeah. Exactly. And the long hair. Yeah. So. um Wint also had a habit of running away from home for short stretches, 
But he always said goodbye to Marla, and he always came back home. Once, she said, Wint and a friend had run away to Oregon together, and their parents made them come back. But not for long. When he got home from that Oregon stint, Wint's parents were considering sending him away for a while to work on a farm. And according to Marla, who said she was 12 or 13 at that time, my parents tried to get him out. He said he didn't want to. That's when he took off and ran away again. But this time, Winston didn't come back. Mm. So this is a detail in the story that may have seemed odd initially after he went missing. Nobody in Wint's family reached out to the authorities to report him missing, right? Mm -hmm. And as Marla explained, my mom and dad, they more or less just said he went out on his own. That was what he chose to do. And, you know, there's nothing we can do because they brought him back a couple times when he ran away and he ran away again. And so the last time he ran away, they just didn't bother. Well... Initially, after he disappeared, small town rumors began to swirl. Marla heard through the grapevine that he had managed to get into a little trouble before disappearing. But she couldn't say what it was or even if it was true. But that also could have been referring to his then pregnant girlfriend. That would be my guess. So, uh, turns out he went to his older sister Vicky's house. Um, she made arrangements for him to stay with her in Boise from Rupert. But according to her, he was only there for a few days because right after he got to Boise, a friend there told him that the logging and fishing industries were booming on the Oregon coast. So he told Vicky that he was going to go hitchhike to Coos Bay in search of a job, and that was that. Okay. So did he hitchhike, or did he get a ride with another friend? No one really knows for sure, but in the spring of 1971, 16-year-old Winston Maxey disappeared and ended up a John Doe, dead in a creek, in Coos County, Oregon, on July 26th, 1971. Marla kept hope that her brother would come home one day, but he never did. And as she got older, she did try to find him, but she kept hitting dead ends, thinking that maybe he had changed his name and didn't want to be found. Then she got the idea to go to the local Social Security office to see if she could get some information. They weren't able to give... Much, but mm -hmm. they did offer to forward a letter to the address that they had listed for him on their records. She wrote a letter, gave it to the Social Security office, and there was never a reply. Mm. So now for the big question. What happened to Wint from spring 71 to July? Many believe that he did hitchhike to Coos Bay, but then what? Why were his pants off? Where was his wallet and his ID? Lori believes that her father was murdered, and in August of 2022, she changed the name of her Facebook page to Who in the World Murdered Winston Maxey. Mm. She's hoping that someone comes forward who has answers about his final days that summer of 1971. Wint is now finally resting with the daughter he never knew, and Lori said, because they could prove it through DNA, I was the only person that authorities thought would be the best person to have his remains. Oh. I know kills me. She has since set up the Winston Arthur Maxey Foundation with the main focus of the group being to help other organ families whose loved ones are missing, saying we just advocate and educate. We advocate for families. If they don't know what to do, we guide them on their first steps and we're there to help support them emotionally and give them resources. Lori added that because of the complications she faced having been adopted, the foundation also helps those in situations similar to hers, saying, 
the best thing that I would say I've taken away from this is just to keep going, keep researching, keep pushing forward. Don't stop. It took 50 years for me to find my dad. And it's always possible. You may not have the outcome that you would like, but there's always an ending, right? Oh, so, whew. just give me a hot second here. <laughs> I'm almost done. I just have to drink about it. Yep. Okay. Uh, Captain Patterson says that the investigation into Wynn's death is still open and active Good. right now today. I love to hear that. He said that they do have other important information regarding the case, but he cannot elaborate for investigative reasons. So they do have something. That's good. He hopes that anyone who was in the Coos County, Oregon area in June or July of 1971, who may have seen a teenager who looked like Winston walking or getting into a vehicle, comes forward. And Lori added that her father may have dyed his red hair a darker brown before he died. So if you have any information, please contact Captain Patterson, and we will put these numbers up on our page when we post this. Yeah. Because I could rattle the phone numbers off to you now, but you <laughs> might be driving, and it really doesn't matter because we're going to post them. Exactly. Uh, but yes, my sources are Uncovered.com, NBCNews.com, Sarah Portney and Veronica Fulton, Facebook, Who in the World Murdered Winston Maxey, KPIC.com, unknown staff writer, and historicalgenius.com, Michael Tiernan. Oh, very interesting. Right? Doe cases get me always. The same. And he, did you look him up? No, I did not. I will have to. He's just so stinking cute. I it just, he's so cute. Here, I'll, I'll do it for you real quick. Oh, gracias. Yes, uh, sort of local. Yeah, ish. Very much local. Oh God, very much local. Where are you at? Where are you at, Winton? Oh, sorry. come back, come back, come back. Uh, the devil was in your throat, and then it hopped into my eyebart. Uh huh. It's rude. That's Winton. Aw, he is adorable. Uh huh. Yeah. Oh, so cute. Yeah. I know. Anyway, so. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a feel good, feel bad. But yeah. he was identified, and he is now with his daughter, Aww. which is where he belongs. Yes, agreed. So, and she got her dad. Aww. One way or the other, she got him though. She sure did. She found him, and yeah. What you got? What you got? Well, after the last three weeks, yeah, you know, I needed a little feel good. Yeah, please, same. Um. And this one has been, again, on my list for a while. Mm -hmm. Because someone we know had a birthday recently. Ooh. I mean, that's true every day, but I'm <laughs> clearly <laughs> referencing one very specific person. Uh, someone whose reputation precedes them. Ooh. And the myths and legends surrounding them, mm -hmm. while always enthralling, aren't necessarily the whole truth of who they were. Ooh. So, buckle up, my friends, because today I'm going to sort out some of those truths from the gumbo yaya, that means gossip, mm -hmm. and tell y'all about the one, the only, voodoo queen of New Orleans herself, <laughs> Marie motherfucking Laveau. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah, it was her birthday. Mm-hmm. 
It sure was. Mm -hmm. So, here we go. Much like the rest of her life, Marie's story starts out with a few discrepancies. Most notably, her birthday. Uh, Because there was no birth certificate recorded. Mm Mm-hmm. There are several varying reports on the exact date and year of her birth, with some putting it as early as 1783 and -hmm. others as late as 1801. Okay. Thankfully, through many years of research, in 2001, author Dr. Ina J. Fondrich managed to track down Marie's birth and baptismal record Mm -hmm. in the archives of the Archdiocese of New Orleans. Um, Of the various discrepancies regarding Marie's birthday, Dr. Fondrich explains, quote, During the antebellum period, court records were often translated back and forth between French, Spanish, and English, and could appear in any of those three languages. Similarly, the sacramental records of the Archdiocese of New Orleans could be in Spanish, French, or English, depending on the mother tongue of the priest recording the entry. Uh Depending on the handwriting of the officiating priest, the entries are either easy to read or nearly impossible to decipher. So, that's fun and not at all a nightmare. I mean, have you ever tried to read anyone's handwriting from, like, you know, 1700s? It's hard. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Even when it's in English, you're like, I'm sorry. Like, what? Yeah, so basically, with these baptismal records, if the priest of the parish is French, he's going to write it in French. Right. So somebody's name, well, Marie. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they are Spanish, their name would be Maria. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that. And then there's the spelling of Laveau alone. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's how the spelling we see commonly. There's one that's likely how it actually should be spelled, which is with an X at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, Laveau, depending mm-hmm. on who was writing it. Yep. And so there are hundreds of these records that, pe- and I will get more into it in just a minute, but good God, mm-hmm. it's no wonder. There was such a discrepancy over when her birthday was. Hot damn. Uh, yeah. So, in any event, Marie Catherine Laveau was indeed born on September 10th, 1801. Okay. Uh, the baptismal record was from her, the day of her baptism, and it was recorded that um, she was six days old at the time of her baptism. Oh, okay. So, ta-da! Yay! Can you imagine being that researcher after years and then actually finding the right one? It's like finding the Holy Grail. Literally. Yeah. Like. Yeah. I I can't imagine. That would be amazing. The most erect of nerd boners. Oh, straight up. Just. Yeah. Huge. Huge nerd boner. Like. Just when you think you can get more erect. Yeah. You do. You do. Your whole entire soul. Yep. Just. Oh, yeah. I felt that way reading about it. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, my God. Mm-hmm. This is the I case. would, too. Right. I know. So, September 10th, 1801, in New Orleans, Louisiana. And she was the first free woman of color born into her family. Uh, her grandmother, Catherine Henry was thought to have been born in Senegal and taken to Louisiana as a slave at only seven years old. 
though more recent findings suggest that she was actually born in Louisiana mm-hmm. um, on the plantation of Henry Roche Belair, uh, where her parents, Marguerite and Jean Belair, were enslaved. Okay. Um, which would make her a Creole woman like Marie. Uh, she would go on to have five children, all of whom were also sold into slavery, uh, but she was eventually able to buy her freedom. Mm-hmm. And worked on buying back her children. Uh, Catherine would go on to become quite successful in her own right and was listed in the 1820 city directory as a marchand, meaning she likely sold food and other items uh, on the street or at a stall like a street vendor. Yeah, yeah. Um, Catherine would eventually purchase some land on St. Anne Street between Rampart and Burgundy. Oh. Yep. Where she... Uh, would eventually build the home that Marie would later live in. Um, Catherine's daughter, Marguerite d'Arcantel. Mm-hmm. We've already got we've already got two Marguerites, mm-hmm. so just keep that in mind because that's not going to stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, she was born into slavery and freed or manumitted, if you're feeling fancy. Ooh, much fancy. I did not know that that was a word, right. let alone that that's what it meant. I'm like, what does that mean? And then I was like, oh, very cool to learn new words. I love that for and me. On, so the house was between Burgundy and Rampart mm-hmm. on, on what? St. Anne. St. Anne? Yep. Okay. I'm going to go to a map right now. You know I have to. <laughs> right, you know I, I have to. We know the area. Oh, we've walked. Yes, we do. Walked, meandered, slithered, probably. Yes. Um, so Marguerite was born into slavery and freed, manumitted. Mm-hmm. Um by her owner and presumed father, Henry Roche Belair. Around uh, 99%. Yeah. Uh, around 1790, when she was 16 or 18 years old, depending on your source. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, Marguerite, who was said to have had African, Choctaw, and European ancestry, was then reportedly forced into a relationship with a wealthy planter, as in plantation owner, not someone who plants things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was a wealthy planter and high-ranking French official in the Spanish colonial government named Henri d'Arcantel. They had three children together, Miguel Germello or Germano, Marie-Louise, and Antoine. Okay. Since Marie's parents weren't married at the time of her birth, her father wasn't listed on the baptismal record, which, as explained by Dr. Fondrich was a common practice for priests to omit the family names of the fathers in the sacramental records when a person of color was born out of wedlock. Okay. Um, this led to yet another historical bone of contention. Whomst was Marie's papa? Ooh. <sighs> Jesus, take the wheel. Mm. While it's been long rumored that her father was a wealthy white French-Canadian man named Charles Laveau Trudeau, He probably wasn't. Easy mistake to make, though, because everyone was apparently named Charles or Marie at the time. (laughs) Um, However, old Charles Laveau Trudeau was most likely her paternal grandfather. Before his marriage to a white French-Canadian woman named Charlotte, he liked to hook up with free women of color, one of whom happened to be named, you guessed it, Marie. Weird. Yeah. Last name was also apparently Laveau. Like, her name was already that. Okay. So, 
Yeah. Mm. Fuck your timelines here. It was, there's another Marie Laveau is yeah. basically yeah. how the story. And also uh, he, the, their son, had an aunt named Marie Laveau. Wow. So there are some people that that's where the 1700s birthday comes from mm-hmm. was her, her. or Got another it. relative named Marie Laveau. All right. So. But we're getting to it here. We're getting to it. So Charles Laveau Trudeau hooks up with a free woman of color named Marie, Marie Laveau. Okay. And they have a son named Charles which is his father's name. Of course. So there's that. Yeah. Um, so her father was actually mixed, and her grandfather was the wealthy white man. Got it. But again, an easy mistake to make when everyone had the same name. Very easy. Good lord. While there's no outright concrete proof that Charles Laveau Trudeau was Charles Laveau's biological father, research shows, quote, numerous financial and business like uh, business links between the two that could not possibly have any other explanation, end okay. quote. Um, because the younger Charles Laveau would go on to become a successful businessman mm-hmm. who sold real estate and also slaves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Not great. No. And Marie herself would go on to have a handful of her own slaves. Yep. So <sighs> Hindsight. Yeah. You know. Very wrong. Yes. Definitely was a thing. Very much a thing. Um, Marguerite, fearing her daughter's future, uh, gave birth to Marie at her mother's home in the French Quarter and left her there to be raised by Catherine. Uh, and Marguerite would die in July of 1825 in her early 40s. Mm. Um, mm. She went back to uh, Henry. Okay. Darkentel. Got it. Her not husband. Got it. Common law husband, kind of. It was an arranged situation. Mm-hmm. Um, which more on that shortly. There is not an excessive amount of information out there about Marie's childhood. And if there is, we might not know it's hers. Right. Because there's 819 Marie Laveaux in the French Quarter all around the same time. Right. Uh, But we do know that she never learned to read or write, which would also explain uh, many of the future discrepancies as she never wrote anything about her own life down. Uh, And she, like her parents and grandmother, uh, and I know it might sound insane to some of you, but I will get there. They were devout Roman Catholics that attended St. Louis Cathedral regularly. That's not wild at all. Well, not to us, <laughs> but maybe to some who right. think those two things can't be together. But I will get there. Hundo PR. <laughs> uh, so St. Louis Cathedral was, in fact, where Marie was baptized and would later marry her first husband. Hmm. And both of those ceremonies, her baptism and wedding, were performed by Father Antonio de Sedilla, a.k.a. Père Antoine, which I just thought was very sweet for some reason. I don't know why, but I just think it was cute. Um, Yeah. My eyebarts are filthy, and I keep losing my place. Um, When Marie was a teenager, she met Haitian immigrant and cabinet maker Jacques Paris, which is my favorite 
name because it's Jack Paris. It's great. <laughs> I love that so much. Um, the couple were married on August 4th, 1819. With the marriage contract describing Marie as a minor, a.k.a. under 25, okay. at the time of their wedding. Uh, while some say that Marie and Jacques never had children, baptismal records would again go on to prove that that wasn't actually the case. They had two daughters, uh, Felicité and Marie-Angélie, uh, who were born in 1817 and 1820. Sadly, both girls would die young, most likely from yellow fever. Mm -hmm. uh, about a year after their marriage, Jacques seemingly vanished into thin air. Some folks say he abandoned Marie and their daughters to return to Haiti, while others say he was murdered, potentially mm -hmm. by Marie herself, maybe. Tons of rumors. Right. However, according to Felicité's baptismal record from 1824, her father was listed as deceased, and it's likely that he had also succumbed to yellow fever sometime around Marie Angelie's birth in 1920. Oh, okay. After this, Marie referred to herself and was referred to as the Widow Paris for the remainder of her life. Okay. Uh, in 2016, uh, LSU doctoral student Kanitha Harrington decided to look into the disappearance of Jacques Paris to see if she could find out what really happened to him. Mm-hmm. Saying, quote, as a student of Marie Laveau, I've never been satisfied that he just disappeared. It seemed too easy for him to disappear, end quote. Instead of searching records for him in New Orleans, considering at least dozens of researchers had already looked into any info in the area over the years, Kanitha decided to cast her net in the nearby Baton Rouge. Hmm. She also searched for Jacques and Santiago Paris, because that would have been... Again, depending on who was writing records right. at the time, Jacques would have been Santiago in okay. Spanish-speaking okay. records. So she's like, hmm, let's check here, maybe. Mm -hmm. Great idea. I wouldn't have known that. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know Jacques would be Santiago. I didn't either, but apparently that is an alternate version of his name. So, yeah, because... Because that old chestnut of right. whomstever is recording whatever it, it language they're one of the three. fluent in. French, Spanish, or... Exactly. Um, in 2019, she discovered the 1923 Record of Succession, a.k.a. a list of a deceased person's possessions, for a Saint Iago Paris. So okay. S-T, period, Y-A-G-O, right. uh -huh. Paris. Okay. Which... Say it fast, Santiago, Santiago Paris. Paris. Yeah. Um, 1920 he, or 1820? I meant 1823. Yes, that's what I thought. Yeah, 1823. He would have been very, very old dead. in 1923. <laughs> um, he was listed as a carpenter, okay. which yeah. was just a general term for cabinet maker. Yeah, woodworker. Uh-huh. And was listed as a free man of color. Okay, he was. Jacques was. Uh, among his listed possessions, it was noted that he died owing $8 to a doctor for the treatment of the unnamed illness that killed him. Yellow fever? Probably. But could you imagine, like, having amongst your possessions just a bill for, for, $8. for $8 for not getting help from a doctor? Yeah. Like, lordy. Yeah. So, she was like, hmm... 
interesting, interesting. And she felt pretty confident that she'd found Jacques Paris, saying, the chances that there was another free man of color in West Baton Rouge Parish with that name, who was also a carpenter living around that time, mm-hmm. are unlikely. The dots line up. I'd welcome arguments against, but that is my theory. Love it. Uh, She did present her findings to the Louisiana Historical Association in 2021, and as far as I'm aware, no one has challenged them. I love it. Right? I was like, who are you? Let's be friends. Right? Can you find my dad? Right? (laughs) If you can find a man named Jacques Paris by the name Santiago Mm -hmm. Paris, girl, I got questions. Mm -hmm. Come find me. Let's talk. Because if anybody could, I feel like she could. Now, around 1826, Marie met Louis-Christophe Dominique Dumény de Glapillon. Wow! Or simply, Christophe. Much easier. (laughs) So much. So much easier. Uh, A white man of noble French descent. Ooh, fa-fa-fa-fa. Exactly. The pair fell in love and entered into a placage or common-law marriage, described by the University of New Orleans teacher history teacher Charles Chamberlain as, quote, historically as where a white man would basically have a relationship with a free woman of color where she would be kept so that he would provide her with a house and some form of income so that she could maintain a lifestyle, end quote. Mm-hmm. Um, which is what her mother was in with. Yes. Henry, Henri, dark and tell. Yes. But why not just get married married? The short answer Interracial marriages were illegal, mm-hmm. but interracial relationships and placage arrangements, super common. We're not. Yeah. Like, that was totally fine. Mm-hmm. But Lord forbid you get married. Absolutely not. And that is why uh, mothers of mixed or, you know, uh, uh, African descent women, mm-hmm. there were specific balls. Turns out that actually wasn't really a thing. The quadroon balls? Nope. There were they were not as common as they were made out to be in later years. In Terrasante. I know, I looked I looked into it and I was like, you have to stop reading this right now because you could be here for a hundred and fifteen right? years. But the brief overview of what I was looking at, they happened rarely. Okay. But they did not happen on a frequent basis. Yeah, but enough to, like, get your daughter out in society to meet these men so that they could essentially be in this type of relationship. Potentially, but not as – they weren't as regular as they've been led to believe. Interesting. Some people say that they might not have even happened at all. They were just a story, which, again (laughs) – is a fun thing looking into that kind of history, mm-hmm. especially in New Orleans at that time period. But from the brief thing I read, they're like, eh, probably not, at least not like other people have been told. So right. there's only one way to really find out for sure, and that is get a time machine. I'm into it. I, I That I would do. Yes. That I would. Yes. Yes. I would take a time machine back there. Yes. For sure. Um. In any event, Marie and Glapion, I just wrote that because I like saying his last name. Yes. Uh, They allegedly had up to 15 children together. Wow. Though birth and baptismal records only exist for six. Okay. Uh, Francois Auguste, Marie Louise, a.k.a. Caroline, Mm. Celestine Albert, Archange, 
Marie Philomène, and Marie Eloise Eucharist. Right. Even in French, which I clearly do not speak well, I can tell those are some biblically inspired names. Some really French names. Celestine? Mm-hmm. Archange? Mm-hmm. The Archangel? Mm-hmm. Is that what that is? Because mm-hmm. I feel like, yes. And Eucharist. Right. That's, I don't need to speak French to know. Bibli. Yeah. Uh, so either nine children went unrecorded, the records were lost, they were actually their grandchildren and mistranslated as being their children. Okay. Or they didn't exist, and there were only six children that they had together. Fair enough. Anything is possible here, but sadly, only two of the Glapion children would live to be adults. Uh, Marie Heloise Eucharist and Marie Philomène. Mm-hmm. In 1831, Marie's grandmother Catherine passed away at 60 or 78 years old, depending mm-hmm. on whomst is mathing. Uh, the family moved into her house on St. Anne Street, but a debt collector came a calling, and the house went to auction. Um, Christoph, Homestever, paid them off and purchased the cottage where they would remain for the rest of their days. Um, it's also said that he put the children's names on the deed. Okay. So they could have some ownership of it as well, which, rad. Um... Uh, ownership would change hands again after Glapion's death due to some unfortunate dealings and or investments on his part. Uh, but the home was saved by a family friend and Marie and her kids and grandkids were able to continue living there. Or so the story goes. Got anyway, it. Uh, Marie and Christophe were deeply committed to each other and their children, so much so that it's rumored Marie never remarried or had a relationship with another man after Christophe's death in 1855. Uh, he is buried in the Glapion family plot in St. Louis number 1, but more on that later. Ooh. Now, before everyone gets too terribly excited, I'm not going to cover the entire history of voodoo today for a few reasons. Yeah. Uh, one being, I am by no means an expert on the subject. Do I know some stuff? Absolutely, yes, that I I do. But I don't personally feel equipped to speak on the subject as if I'm incredibly well-versed in it. I'm only a little versed. Uh Just a little versed. Uh, I also don't feel like it's my place to educate so many folks on a practice that I have no formal training in and haven't officially been initiated into. Yeah. Uh, There are also... Many different practices that can not only differ from city to city, but house to house. Mm-hmm. Also, the time it would take to fully research and write out what I'd want to actually share, I would be better off writing a book about it. <laughs> However, that doesn't mean I'm not going to touch on it a little bit. Because obviously, you got I gotta. If you'll remember, I mentioned earlier that Marie Laveau was a devout Roman Catholic. And I know some of y'all might be confused right now because Catholicism and one what some consider black magic don't seem to work together. Well, sorry to tell you, but you're wrong. Very wrong. Soup's wrong. <laughs> if you've caught any episodes we've done with the incredible J. Allen Cross or happened to have read his book, then you'll know that religion and magic, particularly folk magics, often go hand in hand. Uh, I mean... If that's how you practice. Uh If it's not, do you. But don't be weird about those that do. Have you read the Bible? Bible. Full of magic. 
all of it. Jesus was a wizard. Straight up. I, I'd say magician, but that just seems silly. Yeah. Just, but yes, full. the Bible is full of magic. All of it. Any hoops. I could probably give a TED Talk on the hows and whys behind the intermingling. Intermingling words are yes. weird. Um, intermingling. Mm-hmm. Yep, that yeah. was... French apparently is fine today, but English is mm. not... Nope. Not my Fuck jam that. today. Intermingling of religion and voodoo practices. And by the way, there is a difference between the spellings. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one most commonly seen and used the double O, mm-hmm. V-O-O-D-O-O. Um, that is strictly for the Louisiana-based practice, mm-hmm. apparently. Um, but also, speaking of my TED Talk, I have a whole-ass college degree on black studies that focuses on African-American history, psychology, and pop culture, mm-hmm. which is another reason why I'm not going too deep on this part of today's story, because we'd be here forever, and again, after the last three weeks, my brain can't brain that hard. No. It can't. Just can't. No. I also don't want to come off as a condescending asshole, because some of this information is already out there, Uh you know? But to give a very brief idea, here we go. Uh, When slaves are brought to the States, they brought their traditions with them. However, at the time, in Louisiana specifically, there was a little something known as Code Noir, black code that quote fixed the legal status of slaves and imposed specific obligations and prohibitions upon their masters it prescribed in detail regulations concerning holidays marriage religious instruction burial clothing and subsistence punishment and manumission of slaves article 3 prohibited the exercise of any religious creed other than roman catholicism and Article 4 decreed confiscation of slaves placed under the direction or supervision of any person not a Catholic. So TLDR, they didn't have a choice. They were going to be Roman Catholic. Uh That was, you did not, that was it. Yep. That, you were. Yes. You, when you came there, guess what? You're Roman Catholic now. Yep. Guess what else? Your kids are going to be Roman Catholic. Yep. The end. Um, which... No, thank you. Uh, But shockingly to most, Catholicism and voodoo aren't actually that far off from one another. Uh, For instance, the Loa are spirits that, quote, serve as mediators between humanity and the divine. Numbering in the thousands, the Loa protect, guide, and heal the faithful followers of the voodoo tradition. Uh Several of these spirits have counterparts that can also be found in Catholicism. For instance, Papa Legba... According to author Denise Alvarado, quote, stands at a spiritual crossroads and grants or denies permission to speak with the spirits of Guinea and is believed to speak all human languages. He's always the first and the last spirit invoked in any ceremony because his permission is needed for any communication between mortals and the Loa. He opens and closes the doorway to the spirit world, end quote. He is associated with... um, Spirit communication, crossroads, doors, and gates. Mm -hmm. And his counterparts in Catholicism would be St. Peter, St. Lazarus, and St. Anthony. Um, Also, the Catholic Church itself seems pretty cool with the whole thing. And in 1993, Pope John Paul II attended a voodoo ceremony to showcase the fact that there was no ill will between the two religions. Uh, In the past, he'd even spoken about the, quote, fundamental goodness 
that was at the core of voodoo beliefs and practices. Hmm, very cool. Right? I mean, I know we're not super huge fans and all, but that was a pretty cool move on his part. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Broken clocks right twice a day, as yeah. they say. So there's that. Yeah. Um, now, as for Marie herself, in 1871, she was described by a journalist for the New Orleans Republican as, quote, a devout and acceptable member of the Catholic communion, hmm. end quote. A local writer and self-proclaimed expert, a.k.a. hater, of Marie, named John Kendall, once wrote that, quote, After dark, you might see carriages roll up to Marie's door, and veiled ladies, elegantly attired, descend and hurry in to buy what the old witch had for sale. Ooh. An errant fraud, no doubt, but money poured into her lap down to the last day of her evil life. Wow! Hey, yeah. Calm down, John. Calm the wow. fuck right on down. Uh, public opinion varied. Was she some kind of evil voodoo priestess, or was she a good woman whose mission it was was to help and protect those that needed her? Mm-hmm. You'll find a lot of both kinds of commentary to this day, but we are not here for opinions. Today we're here for facts, or as close to them as we can get, all things considered, including my own personal bias. <laughs> mm-hmm. In a surprise to no one listening to this episode... The details of why, when, and how Marie began her foray into voodoo aren't clear, but it's rumored that her interest was piqued after her mother died. Some think she trained under practitioners Saint Didi or Marie Salope, who may or may not have even existed. Fair. Uh, others believe that she learned tricks of the trade from her mother and grandmother as it was passed down to them. Mm-hmm. Others believe she um well it's like the most prevalent theory mm-hmm. of where it came from was that she was taught by alleged senegalese prince practitioner conjurer and root worker dr john or john bayou mm-hmm. it's also entirely possible that her training was a mix of all of the above yeah uh whatever the case may be by the 1830s marie was well known in new orleans for her skills and would ultimately be given the moniker by which we know her now the voodoo queen. Um, these skills, which some legends have potentially greatly exaggerated into supernatural abilities, mm-hmm. were most likely common um, in fellow herbalists and healers of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, but Marie was probably just exceptionally good at what she did. Love it. Same. Uh, it's been long believed that she opened a hair salon, though some debate this and say it was actually her daughter. Um, And in the salon, she catered to the city's wealthier residents. Here, she and her little birds were able to gain inside knowledge on the lives and dealings of the clientele, which would eventually lead to people believing that Marie was psychic. Um, I mean, maybe she was, but she wasn't going to deny it when it was potentially beneficial to let folks think that she could read their minds. Right? Yeah. According to a very cool blog by New Orleans-based... Gambino's Bakery, of all places. Uh, Quote, her work blended her Catholic leanings with her African roots. She incorporated holy water and Christian iconography into her spell work. By doing this, she made her practices more approachable for upper-class patrons and the religious community at large. Much of her work included fortune-telling and grigri, or charms. These charms varied from love spells all the way to curses for enemies. 
Marie also led spiritual celebrations around the city, including monthly voodoo meetings in Congo Square, as well as the pre-Christian summer solstice festival called St. John's Eve, where she implored her followers to commune with spirits through dance and music, end quote. Cool. Right? Very cool. Um, she was said to have several altars in her home that featured the likes of the Virgin Mary, and she apparently had a particular fondness for Moses, whose influence she worked um, into her own practices, because he, you know, built altars, talked to spirits, and the like. Uh, she also encouraged her followers to pray and go to church, and is said to have ended her prayers with, on si so ill, which is French, very bad French for so be it, which would become the voodoo equivalent of Amen. Mm-hmm. It's also alleged that she owned a giant boa constrictor known as Zombie, named after a deity known as Le Grand Zombie, mm-hmm. uh, whom she would drape over her shoulders and just walk through the streets with him, just riding on her shoulders. Was it true? I don't know. Cool story. Either way. Yep. Just... Hell yeah. I mean, I think there's some paintings of that people have done of that. <laughs> well, we'll talk about those. Yeah. Uh, there were endless stories of her powers, so I'll just share a couple that floated around at the time. Uh, the first being when two white men were set to be hanged in a public execution, as was customary at the time. Uh, the men had allegedly been found guilty of murdering a slave... And when the executioner was about to pull the lever, the sky turned an ominous red and a lightning storm kicked up out of nowhere. According to one report from the day in question, quote, a sheet of lightning, a sheet so blinding, so dazzling, so stunning as to partake of the unnatural illuminated the scene and rent the skies in twain. You can definitely tell us from the 1800s. Wow. And I love it. Things don't get rent in twain anymore. They sure don't. Not enough. <laughs> uh, nothing so weirdly, so terrifically grand, so indicative of the power of an offended deity has ever before been heard. End quote. Wow. Yeah. Uh, when the crowd turned back towards the gallows, both men were gone. They had somehow managed to slip out of the nooses and either drop through the trap door or to the ground beneath them, relatively unscathed. You see... Marie Laveau was said to have been in the crowd that day, and she was not a fan of public executions. Oh, okay. Um, the unnecessary humiliation of these people, okay. guilty or not, she just didn't like the spectacle. Yeah, it's pretty gross. Yeah. Um, many believed that the storm was her doing, and it's rumored that she was the reason that Louisiana was the first state to outlaw public executions. Mm-hmm. Because they were. That is actually a fact. Whether or not she had anything to do with it, they were still the first state to say, maybe not. Maybe we shouldn't do that. Of course, this was never actually verified that she was there. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was widely accepted as true at the time. Uh, The men were eventually hung for their crimes, but no one can say for sure if it was a public spectacle or if it happened somewhere within the privacy of the prison. Okay. Another legendary tale, perhaps one of the most well-known, involves how Marie came to own her home. While we know it was passed down from her grandmother Catherine, rumors of the day attributed it to one of Marie's wealthier white clients. As the story goes, a wealthy man came to Marie for help after his son was arrested for a crime, possibly murder, 
uh, that looked like he was definitely guilty of committing. Like, there was a lot of evidence against him. She agreed to help the man and his son and went to pray at St. Louis Cathedral. And while she did so, she held three hot guinea peppers in her mouth to show her commitment Mm -hmm. um, and devotion to Mm -hmm. this cause. Um, When she was finished praying, she placed the peppers under the judge's seat at the courthouse and then nailed a cow's tongue under the prosecuting attorney's chair. When the young man's trial came, the lawyer was so tongue-tied that he wasn't able to present his case against the young man, which resulted in his freedom. Mm -hmm. After winning the case, the young man's father gifted the St. Anne Cottage to Marie as payment for her services. While there are infinite stories like this, and despite what ignorant people thought of and said of her voodoo, Marie didn't actually use her alleged powers to erroneously harm people. In fact, she was a healer, a protector, and a humanitarian, often using her skills to help those in need. Um, And she lived very modestly, Mm -hmm. despite what people said, like that fucking John dude. It's like, money, money, money. And Mm -hmm. she was like, "Mm, not really. Right. I got maybe 15 children that I have to feed, you know, so... Right? No. And uh, this this house here on St. Anne is not the La Lowry Mansion. She was nay. She was, she was a cottage. A cottage. Um, so, yeah. you know. Um, she was known to visit prisoners, especially those that had been sentenced to death. Um, and she would set up altars for them in their cells, prepare their last meals when called for, and would pray with and for them. Uh, Her daughter, Marie Philomène, would share after her mother's death that during her prison visits, Marie would only perform or partake in Catholic rituals and prayers, especially near the end of her life, when she started doing this more. Um, Through her relationships with certain people in power, judges, police officers, lawyers, what have you, she was able to get some prisoners pardoned and the death sentences of others commuted, though naturally folks believe, or some folks believe that she was able to do that through magic. Um, And whether she was getting them pardoned frequently or not, Uh of course we're never going to find out, but she at least made attempts to get certain prisoners pardoned, which, yeah. Yeah. Uh, She taught skills to the women in her community, whether they were voodoo-related or medicinal or herbalist skills can't say for sure but she did so free of charge um she also performed the work of a nurse which included minor surgeries on occasion oh go on uh which was also apparently not super uncommon of the day because you know lots of lots of stuff was going on around that time just a lot and they're like hey uh help well i mean the barbers used to be the dentists exactly when there so. wasn't a dentist in town, you mm-hmm. go to the barber to have your teeth pulled. Yep. Exactly. Uh, she often brought sick people into her home to treat them and helped out during yellow fever and cholera outbreaks. Mm. Uh, in her obituary, it was written that, quote, wonderful stories being told of her exploits at the sick bed. In yellow fever and cholera epidemics, she was always called upon to nurse the sick and always responded promptly. Her skill and knowledge earned her the friendship and approbation of those sufficiently cultivated, end quote. 
Uh, she went into the homes of the afflicted and helped them with herbal remedies and prayer, while many were too afraid of getting sick themselves and didn't bother to do what she did. Right. Um, it's been reported that a large number of the Creole population were immune to yellow fever following the first outbreak in 1817, which would potentially explain why she was one of the few who helped the sick without worrying about her own health. Interesting. Potentially? Like, yeah. if, is that medically true? I can't say. Yeah, I don't know. I know nothing about 1817 medicine. Really? Or at all, in general. Fair. So there's that. That was just what was reported in some articles that I read. So, like the rest of this story. Mm. Right? Maybe. Um, she also frequently helped those who um, just asked her for it mm -hmm. and needed her help. Without ever asking for anything in return. Which is very, very cool. Yes. Um, they're like, I need some herbs. I have a chocolate devil frog in my throat. Yeah. <laughs> Can you please help me fix it? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. It got you. For you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Here's some fucking water, you nerd. <laughs> uh, over time, Marie began to slow down, and around 1875, she announced that she was retiring as the voodoo queen. Uh, she still offered a few services throughout the rest of that year, but turned her focus to her Catholic faith full-time. As her health declined, she went out less and less, and was mostly confined to her home for the remaining years of her life. Mm. On June 15th, 1881, just a few months away from her 80th birthday, the widow Paris, Marie Laveau, passed away peacefully in her home. Um, despite rumors that she's not actually buried at St. Louis Number 1 Cemetery, records corroborate the fact that she was indeed interred in the Glapion family tomb. Mm -hmm. um, it's said that if you visit her grave, which is also known as the Wishing Tomb, and make a wish, she'll grant it. Uh, to do so, you, quote, draw the X, place your hand over it, rub your foot three times against the bottom... Throw some silver coins into the cup and make your wish, end quote. Or, quote, leave offerings of food, money, and flowers, then ask for Marie's help after turning around three times and marking a cross with red brick on the stone, end quote. As much as you might want to partake in this ritual, don't. Uh, it's not only illegal, but also highly frowned upon by cemetery caretakers, preservationists, and tour guides, as the markings are said to be destroying the tomb. Um, if caught making any markings on the tomb, you will receive a hefty fine, at best. Um, and also they say that that's not even an actual voodoo ritual. It may have likely stemmed from another writer from the 40s uh -huh. who was full of shit. And that is why I did not bring him up. Until now. A lot of the stuff that he wrote about Marie Laveau was unfortunate, to say the least. And so, you know, just a white man making up stuff about women of color. Mm -hmm. and Except, there, we've seen multiple graves. Oh, yes. Three X's. Oh, yes. The X's themselves could be, but the actual rituals right, that right, they have... Right. And also, people say that it's potentially because that is how she signed her name, because she could True, not read right. or write, yeah. was the X. So Because there's that one in the back mm -hmm. that is covered, and I mean covered, oh, yeah. and they, it's old. 
None of that's new. I mean, it's old, 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 yeah. old, old. They're old, like, old, don't, old. don't, don't do it. Also, apparently, uh, the the Misfits. That's Danzig, right? Mm-hmm. Sometime in the eighties, the Misfits were in New Orleans and they got arrested for trying to like resurrect Marie Laveau at this tomb. Interesting. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, don't do that. Yeah, no. I feel like she would be real pissed. Yeah. If she came back and was like, who the fuck is this nerd? Yeah, now it's all pink. Yes. Um, uh, not the one in the back, but hers. Hers, yeah. yes. Or at least it was when we were there. Yes. Um, so, you know, maybe don't, because they will give you a big old fine for it. Um, a less destructive way to ask for Marie's assistance is to knock on the tomb three times and then make your wish or request. Uh, better still, head over to the Healing Center on St. Claude Street and make your offerings at her official shrine, mm-hmm. which is where that is. Uh, several different publications wrote of her death with varying degrees of politeness. In some, she was referred to as a she-devil, um, while writer Lafcadio Hearn referred to her as, quote, one of the kindest women who ever lived. Mm. I love that. In 1930, New Orleans resident Eileen Eugene, great name, right? Um, she was quoted as saying, quote, Marie Laveau was a voodooienne. She was the queen of them all. White and colored folks used to go to her. She could keep anybody from harming you, and she could do anything you wanted done to anybody. How she used to do it, I don't know. She used to say prayers and mix different things to give people to drink, to rub with, to throw over your shoulder, to throw in the river. Oh, she had a million things to do, but everything would just happen just like she would say. She used to get a lot of money and gifts from rich white folks. Marie Laveau is a name that was respected by everybody and dreaded by a lot of people. When she died, she had a big funeral with white and black people paying their respects. For years after she died, people used to go put money silver mm-hmm. on her grave in the St. Louis Cemetery. Up until now, some people go there and put their hand on her grave and make a wish and their wish is granted. I don't recollect exactly where it is because I'm getting along in years now and the name is worn off the tombstone, but it's in that St. Louis Cemetery, end quote. Mm. I don't know why they were talking to this random woman in, in- 1930 something, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. 1930. Why? I don't know, but I love that they did it. Yeah, right? Um just wonderful. But of course, a little thing like death wouldn't stop the powerful voodoo queen herself, would it? Nope. Of course not. Not long after her death, it was rumored that Marie had somehow managed to resurrect herself, and several sightings of her walking around were reported. However, it's likely that they had actually encountered her daughter, Marie Philomène, better known as Marie II, who okay. would also go on to become a hairdresser, and her mother's caretaker at the end. Um, but she was practically her mother's twin. Some think that Marie too may not have been Marie Philemon either, but just a woman who bore a striking resemblance to her, while others believe that Marie too was her other daughter, Marie Heloise. However, she predeceased her mother by about 19 years or so. So right. that is not, not the case. Um, in their heydays, both women, Marie and Marie too, uh, were statuesque beauties with curly black hair, striking eyes, and a golden skin tone, as it is written in some sources. 
Cody Roberts, a professor of American or African American history at Louisiana State University, shared in an interview with Al Jazeera that, quote, even as early as the late 19th century, when you ask people about Marie Laveau, <clears throat> they describe her as tall and fair skinned with curly hair. She's black, but she's not black. She's Creole. But then you get other people who still practice voodoo in the 20th century saying that they prayed with her or danced with her. They say she was dark and short and fat. <laughs> that conflict goes back as far as I can tell, end quote. In the same interview, Sally Ann Glassman, a Haitian voodoo practitioner, said of Marie's appearance that, quote, there were some eyewitness accounts, but no images of her, end mm -hmm. quote. The most well-known painting of her was done by Frank Schneider around 1915, and that his painting was allegedly based off of another portrait. So it was a copy uh -huh. of a portrait done by George Catlin in 1837. However, the original painting may not have been done by Catlin, who was said to have been a contemporary of Marie's, and that it might not even be of Marie Laveau at all. Uh -huh. uh, there were no records of him. Like, he had been in Louisiana, but there were no records of him being there at the specific time when they think that painting was uh -huh. created. Uh, it is signed by him, but the style is unlike any of his other paintings. Uh -huh. Even the frame that it's in is not like anything. Is that the one in used. the museum? Uh, kind of. Uh -huh. So there's this one from 1837-ish, and then the recreation, which was done in... 1913 to 1915, mm -hmm. somewhere in there, by a museum employee. Hard to say. Well, I'll try. <laughs> uh, the original portrait was lost, and Schneider's recreation sat in the Louisiana State Museum for decades. The portrait was damaged in a 1988 fire, but was later repaired and restored. The original portrait reappeared 185 years after it was painted and sold at an auction for nearly $1 million. Damn. Despite several claims from people claiming to have painted, sketched, or photographed Marie, her daughter said that simply wasn't true, telling a reporter from the Daily Picayune that her mother, quote, never had any photograph taken, nor had she ever been sketched. Interesting. And what year did she die? 1881. Uh, yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, we're going to get a, a tin type at best. Yeah, That's but about it. According to Marie Philomen, never happened. So, what did she look like? Turns out we don't really know. Fair. All portraits you see of her are based off of the Schneider or alleged Catlin paintings, but that might not have even been her. Interesting. So, I know. Um, yeah. Real weird. And the, that portrait was named later by um, Schneider. And it was like Portrait of Marie Laveau okay. or something like that. And that was changed. It is no longer called that. It's Portrait of a Creole Woman or okay. something like that now. Because they're All like, right. mm, questionable. Many an art historian. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh looked and they're like mm, I don't Hard think say. so yep. nope. so what did she yeah. look like mm. uh -huh. we know she was a Creole woman there you go the end that's it there you go but I don't think she would be too upset if you thought of her 
as Angela Bassett. I don't think she would. I, I think, think she would be I think quite. She'd be really good with that. I think so too. I think she'd be quite okay yes. if you want to picture her as Marie Laveau, as Angela Bassett. Yeah. yeah, Angela Bassett as Marie Laveau. Thank you. Yes. Um, and what would any tale of New Orleans be without some ghost stories? Since her death, locals have reported spotted Marie spotting Marie walking through the city streets frequently. Okay. Others have claimed to spot her in St. Louis Number no. One, strolling through the graves and into her very own tomb. Some have reported hearing drumming and chanting coming from a completely empty street. Sometime in the mid-30s, a man named Elmore Banks claimed to have had an interaction with the long-gone priestess near the cemetery where she's buried. Uh, He was apparently in a drugstore when an old woman came in and gave him the Wiggins. Uh Uh-oh. And the proprietor actually, like, went to a back room. Because he was like, oh, no thanks. Um, <laughs> I'm not into it. I, I'm working. But you know what? Not right now. <laughs> I'm going to take five. See you maybe later. <laughs> so he dips. And this woman, this older woman, she just laughed. And she asked Elmore, don't you know who I am? To which he replied, no, ma'am. Wrong answer. Uh-oh. She immediately got pissed, slapped him in the face, oh, and, shit. and jumped up into the air. She then levitated right on out the door, glided over the telephone wires, and vanished once she'd passed over the gates into St. Louis Number 1. Wow! Elmore promptly passed out, and when he came to, the store owner handed him some whiskey and told him, that was Marie Laveau. Oh, shit. Yeah. She's also said to haunt the site of her former home on St. Anne Street, Despite the fact that it was demolished in the early 1900s, some say 1903, some say 1905, either way, it was torn down. The new house that sits on the property is apparently used as a vacation rental these days, and I want to go to there. Done and done. I want to go to there yesterday. Um, So who was Marie Laveau, really? In the words of her obituary in the New York Times, quote, the secrets of her life could only be obtained from the old lady herself, but she would never tell the smallest part of what she knew, and now her lips are closed forever. And as she could neither read nor write, not a scrap is left to chronicle the events of her exciting life. End quote. All we're left with of the legendary figure are whispers. But to quote the unnamed blogger at Gambino's, how are legends made? One whisper at a time. Fuck yeah! And that is the most truth I could put together on Marie motherfucking Laveau. Hell yeah. Ooh, bless it. Nice. Uh, sources, jstore.org, uh, two separate installments from Louisiana History, the Journal of the Louisiana Historical Association, volume 46, number three, one entitled The Birth of New Orleans Voodoo Queen, A Long-Held Mystery Resolved by Dr. Ina J. Fondrich, and another piece entitled Marie Laveau, A 19th Century Voodoo Priestess by Carolyn Morrow Long, uh, genie.com, nola.com, two articles by Doug McCash, wwno.com, tripod New Orleans at 300, which is a podcast hosted by Lane Kaplan-Levinson. I just read the article. I did not listen to the podcast. Uh... Go.gale.com, Corinne Cosbell, the Wikipedias, 
Essence.com, Sierra Chenier, Listverse.com, Deborah Kelly, and a separate article by Aaron Fox, Dictionary.com, Gambinos.com, Britannica.com, Chantrell P. Lewis, 64parishes.org, Carolyn Morrow Long, Digpodcast.org, Marissa C. Rhodes, PhD, and Elizabeth Garner Masaryk, PhD, NolaGhost.com, TheCollector.com, Olivia Barrett, uh, AtlasObscura.com, just Eric. <laughs> LearnReligions.com, Patty Wigington, Encyclopedia.com, GhostCityTours.com, Faculty.Webster.edu, Bob Corbett, SkepticalInquire.org, Joe Nickel, PhD, TheTravelingWitch.com, S.L. Bear, America.AlJazeera.com, Masood Hayoun, AllThat'sInteresting.com, Gina DeMuro, VoodooOnTheBayou.net, Wendy May Chambers, WomenHistory.blog, or WomenHistoryBlog.com, Yesterday'sAmerica.com, ChroniclingAmerica.loc.gov, The Staunton Spectator from uh, July 12, 1881, originally posted in the New York Times, that was her obituary, and digitalcommons.chapman.edu, Marie Laveau's Gumbo Yaya, The Catholic Voodoo Queen, and The Demonization of New Orleans Voodoo by Sarah Mast, uh, in Voces Nove, Volume 9, Article 4, from 2018. Yeah! Yeah, <laughs> yeah! The Gumbo Yaya! I love that. That's a thing, uh-huh. by the way. Uh-huh. Yaya Sisterhood. Makes sense now. Definitely that. The Gumbo Yaya. Well, fucking love it. Fuck yeah! Right? Good shit. Thank you. There was a lot of, there was some Interest digging yeah. oh, to I bet. find. Yeah. And I didn't even remotely scratch the surface. No, 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 no. Because. That's a, yeah, I mean, it's, you know. Literally no two, photos, no two of those it's, women did like decades worth of research mm-hmm. just to find what. I talked about. Right. So thank you to them for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very fucking cool yeah. though. So cool. Like and like I said, their her wedding certificate or contract is still there. preserved yeah. in the cathedral. I don't know if you can see it. I don't know if it's displayed, but it is there. Interesting. There's only one way to find out, and that is to go back. We've been in that cathedral many a time. I know, but I feel like we never actually stayed for very long. We went in, and we're like, it's a church. We gotta get out of here, Mm -hmm. just in case. (laughs) It might not be safe in here for us. It might not be good. It might not be great. We better leave, just just in case. Just in cases. Yeah, just in cases. That'd be cool to see. I I know. Yeah. It might be. I don't know. I don't know. Are you in Nola? Let, let me know. Have you seen it? Have you seen Marie? Is it, a, is it an archive thing that we can go and look? I mean, put on gloves and masks and right. Just look at stuff. Nerd boners. Hard nerd boners. I know. I know. Big ones. Giant. Huge. I can only get so erect, yes. and it's how erect I am right now. Correct. In my spirit. <laughs> spiritually erect. I am currently spiritually erect. Correct erect. <laughs> spiritually erect. I was going to text you before this day and be like, hey, will you bring me another Marie Laveau medal? Because I can't find mine. But then I figured you'd have questions. Like, why are you asking me about mm-hmm. this right now? So I didn't. But yes. please put one aside for me because I literally can't find mine and I don't like it. Got it. But yeah. Got yeah. it and heard. Yeah. All right. Well, fuck. We done did it. We done done it, y'all. It was not a bummer today. No, today was good. It was. I mean, I got a little misty at the yeah, end of my yeah. story, but it was a it was a good mist. It was a good mist. <laughs> it was it was a feel good, feel bad. Yeah. 
but you know, in other than finding out what happened to Wint, I mean, you know, he, at least Frog Boy got his name. Exactly. So, uh, y'all know the drill. Rate, review, subscribe, share, share, share. If you'd like some exclusive motherfucking content, go become a patron on our love patron. Please. Yeah, do that. Please Got do. anything to say over there? Nope. Nope, he's working. <laughs> nah. Nah. All right, well, till next time, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Hexes and hoes, y'all. Uh, bye. Uh, bye. Hats off to the fuck you club. First and foremost, if you murdered Wint Maxi, fuck you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, secondary, fuck you to all the Marie Laveau haters. Yeah. Okay. So fuck you, that guy. That guy. That guy. That guy. Fuck that guy. That Called her evil. Fuck, fuck you, bro. Yeah. Fuck off. Shut your mouths. Shut it hard. And then, you know, fuck you, Bab. Always. Fuck you, Ted. For sure. Fucking fuck you, Gwyneth. Definitely. Kimberly can't read. No. All of the above. You, you know. So, all right. Well, we done it. We done the fuck you club. You sure did. Hey, button guy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take us on out of here. Dicks, pussies, and assholes. Ah. <laughs>